All right, Joe, we're going. Really? Yeah, we're going. We're going now. Okay. Yeah, and this is a special episode. Do you know why? I don't know why here, but I'm going to make you a promise. Whether it's special or not, I'm going to make you a promise. Okay. You want to hear my promise? I love having promises. Here's my promise to you. Yeah. The promise to you is I'm not going to sniffle or cough (laughs) or cuss. Because I know that we want to just send this thing right to the world. That's that's right. So so this is a special episode because it is live to tape, baby. Do it live. We are... um, Do it live. No editing. I'm not going to fiddle with the sound other than our usual filters to try to make it sound good cool and no show notes this time no show notes no guest no guest this, this is, is just, just in fact i already know the episode title what is it drive by all right see i just said it so it's okay yeah you made it official <laughs> because this is a drive by mailbag episode mm. we have tons of accumulated feedback i would say do. tons we've got some very crisp nice questions yep. and uh and feedback and and some of them are related to one another. Yes, true. It's. I, I was reading through it again today to remind myself of some yep. of this feedback. We there there may be stuff on Twitter and Facebook that I forgot about, and mm. I hope I hope I get to that stuff. Well, we're going to focus on our Slack pack. We're doing a <laughs> Slack pack. Yeah, we're doing a drive by Slack pack. Why doesn't everybody use Slack? I don't know. God, I wish our law school used Slack. The mm. world's full of losers. <laughs> Not, um, not, there it can be really there can be good reasons not to use slack I w- oh i wasn't ca- talking about our prior conversation about slack i was just making a separate and independent point <laughs> what, are you, wait, so instead, <laughs> instead of based on that comment instead of adam smith i'm going to start calling you donald trump oh no thank you please I'm not this a, world is full of losers i'm not an orange haired dumpster fire oh my gosh see now you've already created editing work for me what do you mean well, we can't say that about we can't say that about the future monarch of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be used against us, Joe. I can just imagine. Uh, oh, believe oh, me. They're, they have they have a world of reasons to drag me off to the camp. Don't yeah. worry. Don't you yeah. worry one bit. Let, uh, let's do it, shall we? Let's. All right. Where, where are we starting? I think we're starting on... Uh, oh, we got listener Asher. Who, January 8th. Yeah, who was following up about the episode we did with Steve Vladek. You want to let us know about this one? Yeah, so uh, we talked to Steve Vladek about the question of retroactivity with respect to this uh, statute that had been struck down as uh, fatally vague. Mm-hmm. And d- did this apply uh, to cases that had already had their full appeal, but were being uh, challenged in some way on habeas? And we talked to Steve about some of the complications of multiple habeas petitions, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, uh, Asher was letting us know back in January that uh, this case had been granted by the Supreme Court to wrestle with the retroactivity question. That case was just called Welch. Uh, it was actually argued this past week. So you can listen to it. So you can listen to If you listen to the Supreme Court's oral arguments in your podcast app of whatever variety or just listen to it at OIA.org or however you want to do it, uh, you can listen to this argument, and it was fun. Or you could just dial it up on your Packard Bell PC with That's the stereo speakers and next to it, right? Yes, you just get, make your guinea pig run in the wheel <laughs> next to it so you get some power. But you can go to supremecourt.gov and go to oral arguments, and you can listen right on there. Or you, oh, you uh, could do that, yeah. You can subscribe. Now, because there's no show notes, I'm not going to link it. Right. But the case is called Welch. Well, Welch against the United States, I believe. And, and it's... Uh, it's you could also go. To, you could it, also go to SCOTUS blog and find out about Welch, sure. which may be a good way to kind of preview what was the issue, oh, what yeah, the issue is about. And remember, issue, you yeah. should definitely listen to our episode with Steve Vladek. But about one this. thing that's neat about the oral argument in this case is, and this is a procedure the court uses that some people might not have heard about, but um, uh, it, it sometimes the there's an issue in the case, and the parties turn out 
some sort of of the bulk of the people involved in the case turn out to kind of agree with the way it should turn out. And sometimes in order to defend the judgment below, the court will appoint a lawyer for the special task of speaking on behalf of the thing that happened below. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is a lawyer like that in this case. Someone was appointed to do that. And so it's neat to hear the, you know, it's neat to hear sort of a different lineup of people arguing. Yeah. And then they thanked her for that service that she provided as a public service. And Mm because you know, you get a point, you get asked to do it and you're basically doing it for free. Yeah. The Dean of our law school, Bo Rutledge has done that before in a case. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it is interesting. It must, it's a, it's a, it's a weird position to be in as an attorney, I guess. I mean, it's, you're essentially like a, a public defender at the Supreme Court in a way, right? You, you've been asked to do this yeah. thing as part of your role. Of a lower court judgment. Yeah. And th- these things happen in the Court of Appeals as well. I mean, they'll appoint attorneys for, to argue yeah. particular cases as well. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so listen, you can go listen to Welch. Okay. Let's go on. Oh, I, this thing scrolled down to the bottom and I can't oh. cut this part out. Okay. Now I, I'm back. I'm back. Um, this is, so this is from long ago. I almost feel bad about how long ago this was and we kept putting it off. We did. So this was a actually January email. From someone who I hope is still listening. God, this guy this is such a good feedback. This is from listener Joel all the way across the big pond mm-hmm. in Australia who says, Dear Christian and Joe, I've been listening sometimes two or three times to some of your back catalog. Isn't that awesome? Can you imagine that? It's great. I mean, I can't even get my family to listen to me once. Yeah, I know. You know? I know how that feels. Over these quiet weeks of our summer. So this was January. So this is like it's beach time there, right? <laughs> and now it's about to become winter. It's fall right. there already now. Right. My partner, who's very partial to knitting and to knitting and to knitting podcasts, was listening in at one point. Her interest was piqued by the prospect you might include a segment on the fiber arts, Knitting with Joe. Mm. Still we, in our future. <laughs> the inclusion of such a segment will not increase my commitment to listening, but I wanted to alert you to the possible crossover audience you might be neglecting. <laughs> now, I think we actually mentioned part of this email on an earlier episode. Yes, we did. And I've actually gotten some recommendations from people about different knitting podcasts and I, uh, from multiple people. And I've actually tried um, some of them. I have not yet found one that suits me just right, but but I will. He continues, and this is the the legal substantive part of the email. He says, I've often noticed that Christian talks of the quote refounding or something of that sort. I think I say reframing. I may Mm. say refounding. I probably say both because I'm not careful enough about it. But, uh, and then he continues and the significance of the passage of the post civil war amendments. He seems to be attributing some substantial weight to the views of the framers of these amendments or the public at the time of their passage. I'm interested out. I'm an interested outside observer of debates over U.S. constitutional interpretation, and I'm aware of the power of the conservative originalist movement. This use of refounding seems to me to be a counter move by Christian, and from that point of view, I understand it. I also accept that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments marked a dramatic turn in U.S. constitutional framework. Nonetheless, it seems hard to defend heavy reliance in constitutional interpretation on an originalist understanding of these amendments for the same reasons as one might critique Justice Scalia's originalism. Those are, at least, the following. Precision in history is difficult. Originalism of any sort ossifies a document which has, on any view, been adapted to new social circumstances over the centuries, and it fails to recognize that there are layers of original meaning in a document amended more than two dozen times with considerable interplay between its constituent and amended parts. I think if you talked about having a show on on originalism, I'd be an interested listener. Nick would love to hear how you theme the fiber arts segment to match. And uh, I think he's referring to the listener Nick who is in his life as opposed to another listener Nick um, who we also heard from recently. So 
which we'll get to in a moment. There are many nicks. So let me let me say this about the refra- refounding and reframing. I, um, I, I'm you know part of what I'm working on is is a is a theory of law which kind of is a better way. It kind of explores the way that I think about originalism. It's not about originalism, but it's about how we think about interpretation of law. So I have some complicated thoughts about that. But I too would love to talk to somebody like. Larry Solom or any of the other, or Will, is it, do we ever decide if it's, we, we even played it, didn't we, Bode or, it's Bode. Bode, William Bode. Yeah. Chicago. Uh, so, so a number of people who argue in favor, it's, there's some very interesting stuff out there. When I talk about the refounding or the reframing, he's correct that it is kind of a counter move. It is a way to negate an argument that, for example, when determining what one's free speech rights are as against the state of Alabama, that what matters most is what, oh, I don't know, Madison or Jefferson thought about what free speech meant. Right. When in fact, the, the thing that makes, the, the, the part of our law that causes you to have free speech rights against the state of Alabama <laughs> is, in the civil, is in the Civil War amendments. Right. And so their understandings of, of the substantive meaning might be important. Now, it might not be. Maybe their only thoughts were whatever right. those rights are, and certainly we should you, apply them. And certainly you would think that anyone who thought that the views of the 17... 17- 90-era folk are important to interpret provisions from that era, would would have to explain how the reframing wouldn't be relevant. Right. I mean, the burden would be on them to say, well, but I distinguish these intentions were very vital to me, but these aren't. Well, why not? I mean, yeah. Um, it, if anything, we would, making a, a, a riffing on a point uh, that, that Joel makes, uh, if anything, the historical record is probably more clear uh, for the the uh, Civil War amendments than it is for the 1790 constitutional drafting exercise itself. So, so if anything, uh, your originalist methodology would be more straightforward. It would still be very challenging, but it would be more straightforward with the Civil War amendments. Yeah, better better records, better documents, better public conversations. Lots of records that we yeah, have. Yeah, the way I would conceive of the originalist enterprise under under my theory is that. You would have a model of law which looked at some founders who were creating some information and, and, a, and a separate institution of, of reframers that are creating some information and the audiences for that information, con- the contemporary audience for both of those institutions is different. Like uh-huh. it's people alive at 1789 and it's people alive after the Civil War. And so how would they un- – so even under originalist methodology, you'd be engaged in several different hypothetical enterprises. Like, how would people alive after the Civil War have interpreted the incorporation through the either mm. privileges and immunities in light of the original? Like, would they have been original? So there's all kinds of problems with this. I would encourage you, though, in the interim, before we can do a full show on this, whether it's it's on uh, the theories of, of well-known originalists or whether it's on our own stuff, to listen to the episode of Amicus, Dahlia Lithwick's podcast, after the uh, death of Justice Scalia where she talked to Akil Amar. Mm-hmm. And Akil is one of the uh, most well-known scholars on the kind of history of the Bill of Rights, the legal history of the Bill of Rights, and on its meaning. He has a whole theory of incorporation, which he calls it refined incorporation, which relies on the idea that the the ideas of the framers, of the reframers, the post-Civil War framers of the Civil War amendments, about how to incorporate were, it was not a carbon copy of the Bill of Rights as it applied against the federal government to to the states. But it was very much about that. So it's a complicated theory. Maybe maybe one day we could have a keel on to talk about this, or we could talk to any of the, the so-called new originalists. There's a lot we could do. And I think mm-hmm. it's an excellent question 
It's one I wrestle with. It's, it's one of the many ways that we talked about right after Justice Scalia died that although, I, you know, I have to be honest, I am, I am glad that he's not on the court anymore, but I am very much um, sad that he's not, his ideas are not, there won't be new ideas of his other than the ones I read, which are causing me to reach further in my own mind. Mm. You know, that kind of deep kind of intellectual right. jousting that he never knew anything about me, right? But his, right. his influence uh, loomed large in my own life, um, part, you know, for that kind of reason. And uh, so, so I remember talking about it, talking about it then. And this is one of the many ways that I think about his, his legacy. Hmm. Did you want to add? I mean, no. Okay. What's next? We got uh, uh, listener, listener Larissa. Uh, Yes, suggesting a number of knitting podcasts. So this I think we talked about that one. This is one of the people from whom I heard, and and as I said, I I'm still on, I'm still searching for. I've I've tried a variety of them from that she recommends and that other people recommend, and and eventually I will find something that I think is a, a good fit for me. And you should report back, so Larissa, I will will know which ones you found a good fit for. For your knitting mind. Yes. Maybe it will be a knitting podcast, which with knitters who have different views from yours, but which are rich in your kind of intellectual life in the same. (laughs) Maybe you will find your Justice Scalia of knitting podcasts. That's what I'm saying. I I like listening to podcasts while I knit, but so far I do not like listening to podcasts about knitting while I knit. Hmm. Well, can I read one other thing that she says here? She says, and for the record, I like a balance of intellectual discourse and bickering. Nice. More like hanging out with friends. If I want slick, polished, and ultra-professional, I'll turn on NPR. Good point. <laughs> there are, always, you there are always people out there more professional than you and me. <laughs> that is absolutely right. In, 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 in any given room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is another Nick. Okay. About originalism. Lay it on me, Joe. You want to read this one? Oh, shall I read from it? Yeah, go ahead. I don't see why not. Is there anything in here you can't read? Uh, well, you want me to read it? Um, no, I'll, I'll, go, I'll read it. Okay. Um, I haven't dug as deeply into originalism as I should have, but I've always wondered, is there any support in the original pre-constitutional writings for the doctrine and process of originalism? Do any of those writings imagine a court that is bound to pre-ratification intent? Do any Reconstruction era or pre-constitution era writings indicate a desire to lock the court into the thinking of that time even 150 or 200 years in the future. If not, it seems that originalism collapses under the force of its own thrust. My weak understanding of the early days of the court is that nobody knew exactly what the court was going to be or how it would evolve, and that the court defined itself to a large extent. Would appreciate you giving background on this. Now, here, uh, so I have a few things to say about this. One, how much research have we done to answer this question? <laughs> Very little. Very, but I do know uh, some things too, but go ahead. Okay. Let's lay it on. So, so a few points I want to make are that um, I, I, think there, I think there are some originalist scholars who have tried to tackle this question head on in their writing about, about it, is the originalist methodology itself underwritten by originalist evidence about the use of originalism originally. Uh, uh, now i thought i had a show title and i and i don't record i I don't recall um 
whether that was especially successful, those efforts. Here, but here, here is sort of my very, very un, untutored, not particularly examined, uh, not particularly informed. It <laughs> has very little to commend it, obviously. But um, uh, so my recollection of the early cases is that they 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 do not feel particularly originalist. Uh, the the early the Supreme Court's important early cases and. Uh, the reason why I think that's likely the case is because the people who were involved, people who were on the court, and this is certainly true of John Marshall, the the greatest early chief justice, um, is that, you know, they were the participants in the events themselves. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really need to look in a history book to to think about what were we thinking in 1790 when we did X, Y, and Z. They were there in 1790. They you think were part most, of, and most they'd have to refer to their shrinks. <laughs> Right. So they're, you know, they're part of these public conversations. They're part of the effort to try to figure out in real time, you know, what to do as, as listener Nick points out, right. I mean, they're, they're in early days, they're sort of very much in the thick of the living process of figuring out what to do with this new government that they've created and its forms and its dictates and all that stuff. So, so I think there's, uh, my recollection is that there's, um, very little evidence in the court's output itself at, from that time of, of originalism as a methodology as we would now understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, the further thing I have to say is this, that uh, if you think about originalism as a self-consciously uh, described and targeted methodology with that name, right? Um, that that's actually a fairly recent development. And indeed, it might surprise listeners to know. Here's the bit of research I did do. It might surprise listeners to know that the very first time anyone on the court in a majority opinion uses the word originalism or originalist to refer to a methodology and not in the title of a work being cited So let me be clear again, this is the first time a justice of the Supreme Court writing a majority opinion uses that word to describe something about a judicial methodology instead of having the word just appear in the title of an article or book being quoted from. Okay. Okay. Guess what year that was? Uh, I would guess, see, I don't know if he used those, I might guess Justice Black. Yeah, it was 2005. So uh, that so 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 uh, you, you're not saying there's a chance. You're saying it was not Justice Black then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. It was not Hugo Black. Um, now that doesn't mean he didn't talk about things like he, he might have used a phrase, for example, original understanding. Yeah, that's right? what I'm thinking. But, yeah. but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the word originalist or the word originalism. Okay. In other words, a, a term you use to self-consciously describe a self-conscious methodology. A, as, okay? dis, as distinct from simply using a method. So if I say original understanding, I'm making an argument and I'm referring to it. Hey, this thing was the original understanding, but I'm not it's, – it's like the difference between – it's like what, what does it mean to be intellectual or to intellectualize something? It's thinking about your own thoughts. Right. And, and, and this is the first time there was like a self-consciousness of a method you're saying. Correct. And or it was, some evidence. This and it was like, an opinion in 2005 by Justice Souter for a majority. When was the first time it appeared in a dissent or a concurrence on that, uh, it used in that way? Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 2006. 
no, 2005, same year. Oh, boy. Um, Roper against Simmons, Justice Scalia oh, really? dissenting um, in the case that held that uh, you cannot be uh, sentenced M- to death disabled. for a crime you commit while a minor. What? Oh, while a minor. Okay, I'm thinking the mentally disabled one. These are... Roper is the age. Roper is the age one. one. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so so why am I mentioning this uh, uh, vis-a-vis listener Nick? Uh, yes, why? Be- because the... It's it's a piece of evidence about how recent this methodology as a self-conscious methodology developed. It's very recent. Okay, So it, if certainly early in the history of the court, they were not talking about a methodology that everyone knew was that sort of methodology. Right? That's very recent. They, they might have talked about, I'm sure there, in early Supreme Court, there's all kinds of discussions about what what reasonable people would think a word or phrase meant what reasonable people would take to be a practice that was established in the law right what what or the citation, english authorities yeah. might say about or something. citation to legislative history even which is sure. you know, which some kind of relig- right. some kinds of um, originalism embrace and sometimes some something is anathema what what civil law authorities might say in a sure. different context as a point of comparison or contrast so there's all kinds of techniques that have been used for hundreds of years but originalism as a as a self-conscious methodological orientation about which people should engage one another in some kind of extended contest right that's really only about 35 years old mm-hmm. or 40 years old well so you know uh one thing that i saw on this was and, and i haven't engaged with with his article deeply enough yet uh to really be intelligent about it. But William Bode, of course, is is pushing the idea that originalism is our law. Yeah. Like that it is the law of interpretation. And and the way that he's done this, as I understand it, is kind of in, is, is interesting. So you might ask, like, why is, you know, we can go to speed trap law if we want to. But, but why, why is the speed limit the law? Right. Why, why is the speed limit the law? And it's because there is a law, you know, some written statute, which says that signs posted establishing a speed limit constitute you know, the law, basically, right? They, there's another statute which points to those signs as authoritative on that matter. Well, why are those statutes the law? Well, because there is some further statute which says that local regulations made in that way are, are fine, and so long as they're paid. And why is that okay? Because there's some sta- constitution which says that, you know, laws passed and such. As, so for each thing that is, we say is the law, and we've done a show on this already, but for each thing that we say is the law, there's some, it's because there's some other law, some, sec- some law secondary to it which says that such laws passed in such ways are valid and binding. Now, the problem, of course, is that can't go on forever or it'll be turtles all the way down, right? Uh, and so what is the, where, where, where does it all end? Where, where, where does, you know, where do we end up? And so what Hart always said, right, was that the ultimate rule, which recognizes all other rules as valid or not, is a matter of social practice. Yeah. It is just, what we what people accept as the rule, which is the basic rule, which governs everything else. Yeah, it's a matter it, of an attitude accept, of acceptance, what, especially what officials accept as something internally appropriate, right. motivating right. To, to do. That 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 it, it's something it, you should it do. It guides, it guides conduct yeah. and it's grounds for criticism if you depart. Right. And this is the basic idea of positivism. There are other flavors of it, but that's that's the upshot, right? Yeah. And so the turn that um, that Bode and others have made is to say that. A requirement that judges interpret laws consistent with a methodology of originalism is actually our law. In other words, it's not just a choice. You know, it's not as though you and I are judges and I could be this and you could be an originalist or 
or I can be a textualist or you can be an intentionalist. No, originalism really is our law, right? Meaning that departure from originalism is grounds for criticism within our legal system. In other words, there's a positivist explanation for why originalism is our law. And the way you establish this is to go back and show that, in fact, people have been originalist, that this is the social practice of our group, and that departure from that has been bad or met with criticism or something else, right? What that does not do is suggest the very interesting kind of thing that you just mentioned, that is a long practice of self-consciousness of the fact that that is the rule. Yeah, and those are two different things. They are, and I really want to, so that's why I want to engage with his paper more now and and see whether those two things are conflated or distinguished. You know what I mean? I I think we've basically created a necessity to have him as a guest. I think we've reached (laughs) the point where we now, that is now required to be. Do you think he'd come on this show? That's required to occur. Do you think he'd come on this show? I have no idea whether he would come on the show. I I also have no idea why he wouldn't. Yeah, well, we're, you know, maybe, let's try to book him for the show after Briar. <laughs> and, and and don't we have a connection on the Chicago faculty now? Didn't wasn't our last yeah guest through Kagan through Justice Kagan, my buddy. Oh yeah, there <laughs> we go. All right, let's do um, it. Yeah, we've got all kinds of connections, right, Joe? Right, we're making connections here. So who is the who is the Supreme Court justice you'd want to have on the show? If we could only get one. Oh, Elena Kagan for sure. I mean, it's no contest in my mind. Not RBG. No. She'd be great though, wouldn't she? She'd be awesome. All of them would be awesome. Uh, um, don't say, I think they would. I think they would all be awesome. They would all be awesome. You're thinking. So, so let me. What you're saying is, uh, um, when you when you hear him at oral argument, Justice Alito grates a little bit. Yes. Do you want to say that? And 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 it, I think he'd be fascinating to have on. He would be amazing to have on. He would be fascinating to have on. Like all of them, he's he's obviously very accomplished in some of the most important ways in which lawyers can yeah. be accomplished. And I think he's he's curious. I bet he's super fun to talk to. But I know exactly what you mean. And we've talked about it on the show before. It's no secret, right? The, his approach to or, oral argument is almost like this trap laying thing. Yeah. And maybe many of them do that. But maybe it's just the way that he phrases it, where he asks the question and you know that he wants you to say a certain thing. And, and unless you want to yeah. engage in a lot of editing, we need to move on from this topic. Okay. The topic that you're discussing right now. Because... Thinking about hearing his voice makes me want to cuss. <laughs> do I need to cut that part out? So you need no. But we, do, but we should talk about something else. Now. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I, for what it's worth, I think he'd be fantastic to have on the show. Oh, of course he would. Even even if even if when he was on, you were cussing the whole time. I would love to hear him cuss back at you. <laughs> I think it'd be great. Then I have no doubt he could. I think it would be awesome. Uh, okay, so um, let's let's go on. What's next? Uh, some more uh, knitting podcast tips from uh, listener, listener Sarah, Sarah, a friend of listener Bunny, um, as she describes herself. Do you want to skip down to the law part, or is there knitting stuff you yeah, want no, to take up? Because I think the, you already talked about the knitting stuff. We can skip to the law part. What's the law part that you want to talk about? Well, she was talking about episode 86, which I think was our episode on education law. Yeah, in the, in the Rodriguez case. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, I've read it for many classes. This is the San Antonio against Rodriguez case, the, the case where the Supreme Court established there was no constitutional right to kind of an equal education. Right. Maybe even an adequate education. It wasn't, you know, but, but they didn't win the case saying that unequal school funding in the state of Texas was a constitutional violation. Mm-hmm. And that was like a case that was a big marker for the fact that our constitution doesn't establish kind of positive rights, positive entitlements right. to social resources. And she says she read it for many classes and just last week was discussing it in class. 
Uh, of course, this was back in January. <laughs> uh, the substantive due process issue was whether there is a fundamental right to education, which some language in Brown against Board suggested, and the equal protection question had to do with class, whether poverty could give rise to protected class strict scrutiny. Now, I can't remember what tier scrutiny ended up being applied. It's a case I feel conflicted about, one where the reality I want to exist clashes with the very linear way I like to think about constitutional law, leading me to question my approach to constitutional analysis. Anyway, I'd love to write more about law and knitting, but this has gotten very long. I'm looking forward to the next episode. Well, she's in luck because there was another episode after this email. Uh, P.S. I started to write a paragraph about speed trap law, but decided this email was too long already. Maybe I'll save that for another email. We would always love to hear more things about speed trap law. And, and from listener Sarah. Of course. Um, I, I think this is a really interesting issue about uh, about about constitutional law guaranteeing rights like how far does it go what is it does it put the requirement on the state to do things we had a whole show about you know state supreme courts putting funding obligations on their state legislatures yep the supreme court has not embraced the idea of positive rights i mean the supreme court of the united states has not embraced yeah yeah yeah, i'm sorry i'm I'm going too fast deshaney against winnebago was a, a case that that most emphatically rejected the notion uh, mm-hmm. This is a case about a, a, a boy who got who wound up uh, being, I think, beaten to death uh, by a foster parent or something of that something yeah. uh, along those lines. Um, but uh, but yeah, our the the constitution, the Supreme Court of the United States has has been quite insistent that that not be the way we approach the Constitution of the United. You States. know, it's interesting. Before I say anything else, I was at as a law student, I I got to see an event with justices. It was at least Kennedy and O'Connor. May have been Breyer there as well, um, but what what I remember most from it was a question about international law because it was really big. I think that was around the time that the use of international sources for the Supreme Court citation to international law was like really controversial because uh, some justices hate that. I mean, it's about sovereignty and everything else, and so I think the debate's a little silly. But there there are parts of it which are important. Maybe we'll do a show about it one day. But the question was. You know, because they go all around Europe during the summer and on other places. I think they'd just been to India and visited oh. the Indian Supreme. I, I forget exactly, but uh, I, I think it had to do with India. Uh, um, anyway, the question was, what have you learned on your travels and visits with other justices and other cultures that you think we could learn from in the United States? And I don't want to say, I can't remember if it was Kennedy or O'Connor or both. And so I'm not attributing this to either, but I am definitely attributing it to one of them. <laughs> One of them mentioned that the embrace by that constitutional culture of positive rights, economic rights, not 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 economic rights in a Lochner sense, not the right to free country. I'm talking about the right to basically adequate shelter and and and, yeah. and education. That this was something that they found interesting. Mm-hmm. They didn't go so far as to say I think that San Antonio was wrongly decided or anything. Nothing like that. They weren't even saying this was our constitutional culture. Right. To go back to Bode's idea, right about what our culture is. But they were saying it was interesting and something we could learn from. I, I thought that was really interesting. Like you could imagine a world where San Antonio had been decided another way. And now the yeah. federal courts, right, would, would be now be adjudicating whether a scheme of property taxes to fund schools, which has the inevitable effect of richer propertied counties having richer schools, whether that's constitutional. And that would be, you know, it's a whole can of worms. There's no question that would be very complicated, very controversial. Maybe that alone is a reason to keep the big federal court out of it, but it would be a different world. It would be. And the, and the complexity of it uh, is something that you can see in the, in the constitutional cultures 
that that have that have walked down this path. So the South African constitutional mm-hmm. uh, guarantees about uh, of positive rights and the ways those have been worked out or, or worked on by the Supreme Court uh, in in South Africa uh, that are it's fascinating and ve- it's very yeah. complex. Very you know, that difficult. makes me wonder. I'm just going to talk out of school here. I'm just talking out loud, so this may be stupid, but it makes me wonder if the former slaves have had had a more direct voice in the reframing of the Constitution. Uh, you know, there were there were there were blacks elected to southern legislatures before basically the the demise of Reconstruction and Jim Crow. I just I'm thinking that your South African example makes me think of that. That's a culture where. There was racial apartheid, and the resource disparity was perhaps the biggest problem that they faced. Right, that there was stark difference between property holdings and quality of life, mm-hmm. and so a major concern, as that culture basically refounded itself, was with finding you know ways to equalize. And equality just didn't couldn't have meant just formal equality. It had to mean more than that, right? Yes, um, I I, I would. And I'm speculating here, obviously. So you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's a good idea for you or me to talk about what the biggest challenge would be, or or to try to hierarchically arrange oh, yeah. their challenges. I don't so mean I, yes. So thank you um, for that. I don't mean uh, to suggest you. You know what I mean? Because because I yeah. think because I think a super important challenge would be how to create a world going forward together where you don't have um, massive killing of yeah. People, in, I mean, the truth and reconciliation. Yeah, the truth and reconciliation was yeah. suffered. So that, that was a huge part. I mean, I yeah. I, so this is exactly why we do this show because <laughs> <laughs> I, I just say stuff sometimes. So I, I don't mean to suggest that I know for sure. I mean, I, that's why I said I'm talking out of school. Right, I'm just right, speculating. Right, right. But I think a major challenge, right, was the unbelievably unequal property distribution, which yeah. was not just like you know some people are upper class and some people are lower class. It was like privation versus extreme wealth and right. what to do with that problem. Like, could there be equality of the races at a political level and a social level without doing something about that. And I, you know, education is the one, not the one, see, here I go again, but education is a device that you have to make the future better than the present. Right. But right? it takes a long time. It takes and, a long time, but right. it is like, it's critical to that. And I, want, is, I just yeah. wonder if reconstruction had included more voices from the former slaves. Hmm. Like, you know, the promise of 40 acres and a mule and everything. If, if that had been constitutionalized, mm. would we have been on that um, more materialist notion of rights or a positive notion of rights? Would that have, be, would that have come in the Constitution uh, if, if, the, if it wasn't just kind of a, I don't say just, I mean, it, the, the, look, the, the Civil War amendments were magisterial in many ways mm-hmm. um, for what they accomplished. But anyway, you know what I mean? I do, and let me let me make one other uh, just interesting observation. A bit of you know, uh, flotsam and jetsam in, that accumulates in my brain as I go along my day, my my day, and my way. Um, you and I were at an event the other day, and uh, talking about Supreme Court, and I was talking about uh, Puerto Rico and and the yeah. some of the history of the uh, creation of the Constitution in Puerto Rico that now exists in the in the fifties, the nineteen fifties. Yeah, other fascinating cases in the court right now. Um, yeah. And the um, the the process of creating what it, the current uh, Puerto Rico Constitution um, involved a step of after they entered this compact approved by Congress. 
to have a constitutional convention. They went and had that convention and wrote a constitution. And then they sent it to Congress and the president to agree that it did what it needed to do, establish a Republican form of government and, you know, be a proper constitution. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, uh, the Congress said, uh, yeah, we think it's great, um, but there's a problem in it and we need you to fix it. Mm -hmm. And the problem in it was Article 20. And Article 20 provided positive economic rights. Hmm. And Congress's conclusion was, yeah, we don't do that here. That's but not, we do in the states. That's not how we roll. The right to education is the one. The, the states are doing this thing that you, that you uh, point to South it, Africa it, is doing. It, so it would be fun to have someone who's really steeped in the history of this to come talk to us about it. It would because, be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because that, I, did read a, I did read it quickly, yeah. the, this rejected yeah. provision. Um, and it, and it, 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 it went on a bit. It was more general uh, than just it, it had a it had a it was a pretty rich and interesting thing, and I can imagine someone looking at it and going, "Oh, minefield," <laughs> uh, and and saying, "Let's not do that. Uh, let's not let them do that." But and it, so Congress yeah. said, "You need to take this out," and they did. Was it an otherwise succinct document, or was it like a so some state constitutions are sprawling things, Indeed. which which have not just right to education, but rights to fish and to hunt and all right. kinds of. Um, positive rights I, you know, I, that are more I, like statutes really i, I right? wouldn't uh, it's there are there are a few constitutions that are as succinct as the as our current national constitution yeah i don't think talk about another show i don't think it met that standard let's go to this uh email from listener craig yes let's can i just say i agree it would be it would be great to live in a universe where we had a dispute worthy of the what, attentions no, don't oh yes you want me to read it can i read it it's all, it's kind of long. It's like not Christian, that long. Christian, we've been long. at this for forty minutes, and yep. we and we haven't made it out of January yet. Oh, but there aren't. But the re, the rest are not as much. So listen. So, dear Joe Miller and Christian Turner and Judge John Hodgman and Bailiff Jesse Thorne. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Though I feel I feel inappropriate even having us mentioned that way. <laughs> That's like I feel like it's, we're not worthy of that. At Sorry all. for the weird format in which I'm addressing two podcasts and four people with one email. I hope at worst none of you finds it rude. At best, all of you appreciate my thrifty use of time. I'm writing to request that Joe Miller and Christian Turner become litigants on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. The case, spoiler. Perhaps the case even may even establish a piece of settled law regarding spoilers. If Judge Hodgman and Bailiff Thorne have never listened to the oral argument podcast. He, he here he suggested they listen to our show, which I thought awesome. Maybe they did. Totally Maybe someone awesome. Did. Completely insane. They have much better things to do than listen to our show. But that is total insult to our loyal listeners. I, I realize that. <laughs> <laughs> Most of our listeners are not John Hodgman. You got to understand this guy. You don't think the world would be better if John Hodgman listened to our show? And 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 we listen to his show it's and. Very Yes, that would be a better world, but it's but nothing is free. And and if he's listening to us, there's something else he's not doing, and that something else could be even more amazingly important. But it's it might not hard. be. It might not be. Might, it might not be. I agree with that. Can, it, it, may, it's very it may only improve. I'm very the, conflicted. It may only improve the jurisprudence of Hodgman. Anyway, um, he says he believes it's in episode 45 of our show. Uh, where they wish they could have a reason for being litigants on on Judge John Hodgman. Which, then it, uh, let me repeat, I, I wish that that yeah. were true. Then in one of the recent episodes, they expressed differing views on spoilers in a podcast. And, a, and in a blip of synchronicity, in the most recent episode of Judge John Hodgman, while clearing the docket, spoiler alerts came up. Perhaps this is a sign from the space-time continuum. I hope that you'll consider bringing or taking this case to internet court. 
Thanks for your time and consideration, Craig. What was our view on spoilers? Did we we I disagreed, know. I know, but I don't I, remember. I, we need to here's what we need to do. We need to go <laughs> listen to that Judge John Hodgman episode mm-hmm. and then we simply need to feign a dispute where we take the view contrary to theirs. I'm sure that the dispute was that I didn't want to hear a spoiler or I thought you shouldn't say something which was a spoiler and you you were fine with it because it maybe yeah, the thing I had think, been out for I think a while. The, I think the whole notion of spoilers is like is basically wrong-headed, backwards, and foolish. I like to go into movies without knowing anything. Okay. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, see? Okay, um, so... <laughs> <laughs> and, we re- and we genuinely... I, I, what I just said, I genuinely believe. I was not trying to feign yeah. a dispute. We can never get on Judge John Hodgman, I think. But, you know, jo- Joe, if only we knew Our people... Our disputes aren't interesting if, enough. If for... only we knew people steeped in the law who could serve as a judge between us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Thanks for an episode Listener Dennis He's thanking us for the For the Steve Vladek episode which we already talked about Yeah well he and he says uh, For for listeners interested in the Monstrous Acts Episode And the issue of death penalty abolition I thought I'd note two ballot initiatives So he's mentioning two California Ballot initiatives one of which does away With death penalty or would do away These are going to be on the ballot in 2016 I think Oh really? I think this... I checked it out today, and I think these have made the ballot. Okay, for the fall. For the fall. Okay. I think I think so, and I, I could be wrong. I'm not going to put anything in, in show California notes. California does a lot of stuff with ballot. Oh, initiatives. it's it's out of control. Ooh. It's out of control. Uh, so one of them would repeal the death penalty. The other would speed it up. <laughs> That's classic. It does, it's like you know, it's like a state a state version of EDPA on steroids. I yeah. think, and you know, limiting successive petitions and all that kind of stuff. And he says the latest poll of Californians on the question, and this again was uh, into January, uh, was that 48% support speeding it up and 47% support repealing it. Hmm. I, I bet it's not in the same poll, although he gives a link and, and um, so people could Google it. I'm not going to give the link right now. Um, I would not be surprised, though, if you do it separately, if there are people who both favor speeding it up <laughs> and, re- and repealing it. <laughs> <laughs> right who who may have a reflex that it should not be so like it shouldn't be so drawn out but also like you know what this thing's just too much trouble exactly like if you're not really focused on it yeah let's not do it but if you're going to do it make it go faster speaking of monstrous acts i feel i have felt that way ordering dinner at various restaurants oh it's like i kind of don't want to be here but given that i'm here can't you bring me the food faster <laughs> this <laughs> you know what i mean the only thing less surprising than that you just said that is um that it's taken you that long to speak of that like in a moment of like self-reflection <laughs> you know speak what i mean of what? well just the, the idea i don't think it would surprise anybody who knows you or has had dinner with you or has been at a social <laughs> that, I want with you, to that you want something to happen right now and yeah. if it doesn't <laughs> uh, maybe i'll just leave <laughs> <laughs> you make me sound like a terrible person no, and, I, and i am it, a pretty terrible person no, but not as terrible as you make me sound oh, like. no you're a wonderful person and, and to show how wonderful you are this we were supposed to get started an hour ago this this whole thing started an hour late and i think the very fact that you're still here and we are still going through the mailbag <laughs> is is just testament to how much you care about our listeners i do given your otherwise predisposition to say to hell with all this i'm yeah, leaving right give up to, to give up on you for speaking sure. of the episode monstrous acts Listener Josh. Mm. This we can say because he's a former That's host. Right. He's right? A guest. For, yeah. That's right. Former co-host Josh Lee. Yeah. Says, um, this was on the Embodied Joe episode. And he wants us to keep up the meandering banter. Yep. He says, just catching up after being drowned in work, keep up the meandering banter, and more Buddhism. And then he actually gives us some emoji. 
His wish is our command. <laughs> I'm not competent to do more Buddhism. No, but we can certainly meander and banter. Yes. Listener Adam. I, you know, I was so happy to get this email because I was worried, you know, I know. So, so listener Adam is the one who ages ago sent us an email about how, you know, he's kicking around a bunch of ideas and he's yeah. he, several emails, many, many good ideas. Yeah. One of those ideas was how about law school without constitutional law? Yeah. Just let's do a thought experiment here, right. which I thought was an amazing idea and amazing way to think about law school. Yeah. And you promptly trashed as a ridiculous well, idea. Look, anyone who's had amazing ideas has had many ideas, most of which are garbage. And Adam's no exception. Uh, and, I think it's a great idea. Now, here's what I, as, again, anyone who's had awesome ideas has also had really bad ones. Well, <laughs> except I don't think it's a really bad one. But I will say this. I was worried. I was worried. I didn't that, categorize it. That after <laughs> In the comment I just made, I categorized it earlier That's true. as completely bonkers. A reasonable listener may make conclusions. And I was worried that Adam had drawn the conclusion that he was being trashed by Unifact. Remember the one bad email that we had? You remember the one email that we had from the person who was saying that I, I forget. He was, yeah, I, yeah. It, was, it was nasty, right? Yeah. Um, and look, very critical, which is fine. If you send, is send fine. in your critical emails. Absolutely. We can take it. Strip the bark off. I get criticized all the time. Yeah. I'm happy. Just bring it on, right? Uh, I was worried, though, that Adam may have felt that way, that maybe, because the way I felt was that you were kind of talking about Adam's ideas the way that you often talk about my ideas, and it made me feel closer to Adam. Because... <laughs> <laughs> um, but he got back to us. So I was like, oh, thank God Adam is still listening and, and wasn't because um, he'd sent us those wonderful gifts. You remember that? The coffee and the yes. desserts from um, what's the name of the place in New York? Zabars. Zabars. Yeah. Uh, he, he has a few comments. One class without laptops in Professor Turner's property class. This is ages ago. Uh, I took no notes, although I feared I was falling behind slacking relative to my peers. The just pay attention approach paid off. I'm glad there was no computer ban then. Allowing computers gave me an advantage over both the fervent typists and the laid-back solitaire players. I should have gone without a laptop in my other 1L classes, too. This is in response to our idea about, um, well, we were talking about laptop bans in general. Right. And I think at one point I mentioned that the research was so clear that I would almost rather my students not take any notes at all mm. than use a laptop. Because at least if they didn't take any notes at all, they were going through that step of reorganizing thoughts in their head. And that seems to be the thing that is cementing right. learning. Um, uh yeah, this just, uh, I'm sorry, I just lost my place here, Joe. Do you want to, what do you, what do you think about that? About what? Not taking any notes at all. I think it's an interesting th- idea. I mean, I, I think it's, you'd have to commit to when a class session ends, like as soon as it ends, you would sit down and, and, and either write out or type out some reflections of your own as, as about what happened in class. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you committed to not taking any notes during the class itself yeah. so that you could listen more and think more right. and just see, like drink in more of what's going on, right. you'd really want to write something down very quickly so that you could recall in your mind with a prompt of some notes that you scribbled yeah. right afterwards of the things that had happened. And it just, yeah. And it depends on the class too. Cause in many of my math classes as a graduate student, undergraduate, you would have to write down the proofs that were being given on the board. Cause you just wouldn't be able to replicate those. Right. And there were other classes where I took no notes at all, and I didn't write stuff down afterwards, but I had read either before or right after, and the combination of listening and reading cemented the thing in my mind. Yeah. Right? And then I maybe studied again for the exam or for the test or something like that, right? And it's, it's harder in law school where there, are, where there are often no interim quizzes or tests. Yeah. And just – so there, there are many things to think about here. I'm just going to 
Let's go to the next thing that he mentioned. He's we, we had a discussion of freedom from and freedom to. Mm-hmm. You remember this about mm-hmm. how uh, forces, as he says, forces other than law create and constrain freedom. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the idea of what, what what does it mean to have the freedom to drive from here to Atlanta? Right. Right. It's uh, you know, the, it doesn't mean the unconstrained freedom to, to go any way you want because if everybody had the freedom to do whatever they wanted with their own cars, including blow through stop signs, then yeah, really no one has the freedom to drive right, in, in some sense, right? House, and he yeah. mentions that in Infinite Jest, at, he says page 320, I'm not sure what edition it is, it's the, combina- <laughs> the conversation between Marath and Steeply talking about the freedom from and to distinction, mm. which I think is really interesting. And I, I remember there was, I've actually thought for many years about including a discussion about property between Marath and Steeply that is in the middle. It's a beautiful uh, discussion about like property rights and scarcity. It's really great. And it, years ago, I considered it, but I couldn't figure out how to get it in the book and everything. So anyway, I may do that eventually. That, that cool. book is full of gems, though, and that, that's one of them. So if you've got your copy of Infinite Jest, look at page 320. And uh, I know I will. I haven't done it yet, but I will. Uh, how to teach law. He says, I won't, go, I won't again go Looney Tunes and think about law school without the Supreme Court. I'm not, I, I think he should go Looney Tunes again, because I didn't think it was Looney to begin with. Until Adam, I've got my thumb up. I do wonder, though, whether law school focuses on future scholars and litigators with less regard for the rest of us. My limited knowledge of accounting and capital structure is a professional weakness. My understanding of strict scrutiny is not a strength. <laughs> Attention in le- legal education is whether to provide a liberal arts graduate degree or vocational training or both. While in law school... I thought that school would cover the graduate degree and Barbary would act as a trade school. Almost seven years later, I'm not so sure. Now, that's a. I want to hear from other people on this. This is a huge topic because mm. law school has multiple. In some, in some countries, law school is part of kind of the undergraduate experience. Yeah, in many countries. You can think of it as a graduate experience. You think of it as a professional school. I mean, medical school has been through the same. This is talked about in many, many places by, by many scholars and, and, and lawyers. I, I can't, I don't even know where to start with it though right now. I have my own thoughts, but do you want to say anything pithy here, Joe, or do we want to let that one linger for a little bit? Um, I, I, I the only pithy thing I could say or, or would say at this point is that, uh, we certainly do as a, as a whole focus in law school on, um, litigators to a much less degree scholars and to an even less degree the other things he mentioned Mm -hmm. that is certainly true um and and i think just given the classes that i teach um I, i think it would be helpful for law students to learn a bit more about the basics of how businesses work yeah and how markets work Mm -hmm. in a in a practical sense in a very very practical understanding balance sheets and yeah, various that, kinds of reports and um, yeah i'm more interested in in having them learn about uh, you know decision making in competition but but sure i mean those things would help you would wind up talking about some of those things so, yeah um so, so yeah some of the financial stuff and, and m- many schools do offer such classes and, yeah and, and i think and, that's yeah. a great thing and yeah. i think more should and it would be great if but more the, students took them the broader point is about more interdisciplinarity mm-hmm. because that's not the you know he may need those things other students may need other things right, right? and and still other Lawyers may need things they don't have that they don't even know that they need that they would be better off with, right? Right. So, to what example? I'm just thinking of a law school which which um, emphasizes doctrinal legal reasoning and theory, right, and a little bit of philosophy, 
a little bit of how the world works is mm-hmm. one component, and that can include business and insurance and all these things that I are. I think it, because it helps, but you, also like poetry, it helps you at, advise better and, and counsel better when yeah. you have some of that breadth and some of the emotional curiosity and right. some of the horse sense and practical knowledge and right. these things just help you be a better advisor and counselor. I take his point that because you know, I think that one of the things that holds back many lawyers is is or can can hold back many students. Hopefully, as they become experienced in their field. It's like this, if you've got curiosity and the drive to learn new things, then you have a whole world is opened up to you in terms of making better, more convincing arguments, seeing things you wouldn't have seen otherwise had you not had that. But I take his point that you also need, like, it's also really hard to learn some things on the job, some very practical things on the job, right? Yeah. So anyway, I, I think we should let that lie there, but this is a point well taken. And the question of law school's identity as a professional school, vocational school, general liberal arts education, that's something I can see future oral argument episodes Definitely. on. Do you want to, uh, so do you want to summarize listener Amble's email? Here's what I think. It's another, um, another variation on the sort of laptop versus handwriting notes question. And I think he makes a really interesting point about a sort of unexamined predicate for our earlier conversation, we were talking about, you know, banning laptops or, you know, allowing students choices about whatever. So he's saying, look, it, intera- it interacts with the, the kind of exam that a professor is giving and mm-hmm. whether the, the type of exam is properly geared toward the approach that professor has taken on how students should take their notes. Because there's sort of some unexamined assumptions going on here about, you know, what is the what what kind of exam do you give? How does a student perform well on that exam? How does a student, by contrast to exam performance, how does a student simply make sure they're learning things that are good to learn and that they can retain? And so you've got a learning versus exam contrast. You've got a, a you know, teaching style versus exam writing style contrast you get there's a lot of parameters in this situation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so figuring just saying i'm going to ban laptops well that might be exactly the right thing to do for some of the students and for some of the teaching styles and examination styles but it might not be the right thing to do unless you think about some of these other issues well the evidence hasn't a very good summary no that's a that's a good i mean he's talking about like the students there's a difference between wanting to achieve a high grade and optimally learning the material and he's saying that that is an unexamined distinction. I think you summarized this more or less. And the the studies about retention and learning focus on examination scenarios, but they aren't exactly, you know, they, it doesn't cover all examination scenarios. No. And maybe whatever pathologies and potentially benefits you see in high stakes law school finals. Right. I'd, perhaps you can imagine at least for some students, it's better to have made the clickety clack noise and, you know, made transcripts of things, you know. Perhaps you could optimize your grade, even if not your learning, by uh, basically, you know, doing a literal transcript. And he's like at least open to that possibility. He says, in conclusion, if a professor allows students to choose between taking notes on a laptop or taking handwritten notes, I think the professor must realize that the structure of her or his grading will reward or punish transcript style notes versus greater understanding. Our Our anxiety at the click clacking of our neighbor's keyboard is sometimes warranted. Graded exercises throughout the semester, assessing with a paper rather than an exam, and or strongly weighing class participation are possible ways for the professor to incorporate this reality into his or her class. Another is breaking one L's from some of the tyranny of grade expectations by showing them that many careers depend on 
much more than fostering experience in law, uh, depend more on fostering experience in law school than on grades. So I think he's saying that the, you know, I, well, I don't want to summarize everything, but the clickety clack phenomenon that you hear your neighbor, you know, typing down everything and therefore you t- start to type down more right. may be rational. And it's not even clear that the evidence says that that's bad in terms of grade optimization for some exam styles. I, I, I feel like I haven't hit this very well either, Joe. I don't, I, you know, I, our goal as teachers is to help our, to help our students learn things they didn't know before, right? To become more creative thinkers, to know more actual practical things. Yep. And to be able to learn more of those practical things on their own in the future, right? Yes. To have a wider vision of their, you know, all these things that we want to do. Yep. And that said, I'm not, I'm, it's not as though I'm not a realist. I'm also a realist and understand that my students' immediate goal is to get a high mark, right? Sure. I hope that that's not their only goal, but it, but it is an immediate goal and that those two things may be in great tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, anything else to say about this right now? No. Further reflection though is warranted. Yeah. And I think over the next few years, there does need to be more examination of the, of the, you know, the, the interaction between note-taking styles, examination styles, goals for a course, both short-term and long-term, and there, we, there just needs to be more thinking about that because it really is complicated. And that's what I think his email was very good at pointing out. So thank you, Listener Ramble, for that. Listener Sarah. Um, Sarah is weighing in uh, as a, as a Law Review editor on some of our Blue Book issues. Sounds like she agrees with me that uh, it's a bit embarrassing that the blue book hangs around as a way to test people about their detailed knowledge. Sort of a self-fulfilling detailed knowledge self-punishment device of some kind. Yeah, she says, attention to detail and ability to follow rules are important, but keeping a pedantic citation system around just to be able to test those skills makes no sense. I haven't come up with an alternative to the blue book quiz yet. But your podcast did inspire another sort of related idea, somehow testing the ability to track down bizarre sources, particularly when the citation is incorrect and gives vague instructions on how to find the source. This wouldn't work with the current closed universe of write-on competitions. These are the competitions that law schools have to choose uh, the members of uh, of the journals. But maybe that closed universe isn't necessary either. It's antithetical to one of the most important skills of law review work, the ability to work on a team. I also love the idea of rethinking how we communicate ideas in general, blog posts, podcasts, videos, interviews, conversations. This concept's already on my mind. And she mentioned some other things that, that she's doing. Uh, I won't mention them there because I don't want to do anything to identify her. Um, so uh, first of all, that, that the latter part reminds me that a number of law reviews I've seen tweeted out uh, to us have, um, have started podcasts. Yeah, there has been a recent, there's been a recent, some recent growth. UCLA, um, St. Louis University. Yeah, the St. Louis University is not the Laurel Journal podcast, though, right? Isn't that the one that Matthew Bodie? Yeah. Oh, you're right. That's not a Laurel Do you remember that one? one? Hmm? Do you remember? I, I, we'll put that in. We're going to definitely, because he gave us a shout out in that uh, blog post. He, he did. And, um, and he sent us an email, too. We're going to get to it in a oh. moment. Although oh, you're right. It's in here. We're proceeding isn't it? extremely slowly. You're right. No, we're, we're um, almost done. No, we're almost done. Oh, far from it. Oh, my gosh. Well, the, the listeners will know. The listeners um, will know. Yeah. Because it is what it is. Uh, okay, so we'll get to that in a moment. Um, 
But do you have any other you comments? You saying Law Reviews have been starting podcasts. Law Reviews have. So yeah, like UCLA Law Review. That's right. That's one of them. And I forget what another one was. It was... Um, I think Derek Muller was... Derek Muller has I've been kind of tweeting these at this. us, yeah. right? And asking them, because sometimes they're setting these up on SoundCloud without an RSS feed. Oh. And so you can't subscribe to them. And so he was tweeting, you know, have have you set it so up helping yet? Helping encourage them Yeah, helping to, to encourage yeah. them. And it's it's great. Yeah, they should do that. Uh, so there's there's an explosion and in interest in legal podcast, which I think yeah. is all to the good. I agree. And Absolutely. we will link some of these in a future show when we do show notes. Yes. Uh, for now, we'll we're just, not doing them. We'll today. just note that this has happened. Okay. Um, next listener, Russell on voting rights. Uh, Russell thinking about today. I don't remember this one. This was about, um, uh, it's actually about, how the court should handle a case that raises a recently decided question yeah in stare decisis and uh it, it the voting rights thing is just hypothetical as an example to to motivate the question and he mentions his citizens united as well the the basic problem is the supreme court recently has overturned case law prior case law right in in the voting rights example shelby county and in citizens united on campaign finance right and what if uh, we, we get an appointee uh, to the Supreme Court and the balance shifts? Could they take that up right away and re-reverse? Because after all, how strong are these precedents, which have which are really new precedents overturning old precedents? Right. It's a. In other words, can we resurrect the old precedent? And in particular, there's a there's an interesting statutory question here. Once part of it in, on the Voting Rights Act, once a part of a statute has been struck down. Um. Could you resurrect that part of the statute? Mm. So suppose we overturn Shelby County, right? And I feel and like Congress this is, hasn't repealed the statute, right. So it's still technically there. Well, is it? And this is we talked about this on another show. It's like, there in the United States. What code. happens when the court strikes something down? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, th- I think there's actually uh, every once in a while people will get in a debate about this with respect to um, uh, abortion restriction statutes that predate Roe. Uh, and that if the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, which is from the early 70s, um, would those statutes spring back into existence? Right. Um, and so I think there are interesting debates about about that. What do you th- how do you think? How do you, is there is there sort of a way to to characterize a particular style of reasoning about whether it should pop back into existence? I mean, it seems to me it should. My intuition is it should because it's it's. What what the judicial opinion holds is that officials are to act as if it is no longer there. But well, but of course it is still that's, there. Yeah, it's that's the, the formal argument. I think the the it's in the code. The nitty gritty of it is where do you allocate the legislative transaction costs? Okay, so there was and and so this your answer may be affected by how long ago the thing was struck down and yeah. how long it preexisted, right? So if you had a statute in that was struck down in 1920. And resurrected today. In other words, the Supreme Court said that that law striking down the statute, that that opinion striking down the law in 1920 was wrong, and we and we overrule it. Yeah, we're going to overrule it now in in the current case. And the question is, what's the status of that 1920 statute? Well, the question really is, do we want to put the costs on the legislature w- which wants to reenact that statute, or do we want to put the costs on the legislature who wants to affirm the status quo by not reenacting the statute? Yeah. And that's a, and I think if it's a 1920 statute and they've been living without the statute forever, 
the, you you put a lot of onus on a legislature to kind of get things together and to you know you create if a you political question. If you insist that they reenact it, yeah, exactly. So I, I think the no, if you excuse me, if you insist that they if they, that they repeal it, right, right. If you if you insist that it's back there, that it's back again, then, then you put the costs on repeal. It's all about where you put the costs on repealers or yep. reenactors, agreed, right? Agreed. And I, I just you know thinking naively, like on the spot, I think the better rule is to is to put the costs on. Uh, to put to, to put the costs on on repealers. But there's, I mean, no, wait, 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 wait. I'm getting this wrong. And it's not just where you put the cost. That's one factor. I would make sure. That I, w- I would say the statute should be dead. And then if you want it again, you got to reenact it. That's what I would do. I think. In the, in but the, what, what worries me about your formulation with respect to the age of the prior opinion that's getting overruled is is there's not just who bears the cost. It's what's the clarity with which a person knows whether or not there there's a step that needs to be taken. And right. And, and yours sounds like there's some mush there about, well, what if it were just last year? No, I, no, I'm, I'm not saying that the, I'm not saying that the rule should depend on an analysis of those mm, costs. What I'm okay. saying is that thinking about those costs, that the basic question is reenactment versus repeal costs, that I might feel differently if I were in a world where the Supreme court were constantly turning over and they were, they were repudiating decisions that were only a few years old. And so people hadn't lived long with the Supreme court strike down of a statute. I see what you're saying. But, yeah. in, but because the, but in, in truth, they overrule themselves. It's, it's somewhat unusual, somewhat unusual. And so it winds up being a while. And that means you wind up with these delays yeah, and right. people have moved on. And there's sort of a death. There's sort of a great reliance on the uh, reliance interest. Right. That people have in living in a world where people just, assume this thing wasn't real. Yeah, it wasn't in Alabama where they hadn't, or maybe it was Mississippi where they hadn't repealed the anti-miscegenation statute or, you know, there... That's true, but what's so funny about those examples is why do we care that they haven't... If, if, if your intuition is right, why do we care that yes, they haven't repealed them? Exactly. So, so what and I'm saying is if, if you adopt my rule that the statute is dead and has to be reenacted, then you don't care. If though, but, but people if you obviously a, do. It still bothers them that it's there as a statement in the law, right? Yes, that's I, why people agitate right. to have them actually repealed, even though they're of no force but in fact. Yeah, but that's only going to happen when you think there's a dignitary interest in not having the state say a certain thing. It and there is. I agree that there is. Which is why I agree that there is. Which is why the fact that it's still there in the statute book is significant. Well, but see, I don't think leaving a statute alone says a lot. Because, because, because many statutes which are, which are, uh, which may fall because of a, not all of them carry this kind of dignitary interest where they speak to the inequality of certain citizens. They may be struck down for other reasons. And so from those, I don't think you can draw any inference other than that, you know, once they're struck down, people kind of get on with things and they're living without the statute for a while. And I just don't think any, any change in the law should occur like that absent the absent kind of legislative action. Hmm. In a world where there's a long lag between... In a world where there's a long <laughs> lag. It's like All the right. world's worst movie. Uh, listener Susie. Boy, there's someone who's going to agree with you, Joe. Just finished a round trip to uh, a certain city, mm-hmm. during which I listened to a couple of your shows, the newest one and one from your back catalog, episode 43, some stuff I like and some stuff I don't, which is a clear Joeism, I think. <laughs> A few thoughts, aside from the usual but true platitudes that I love your show. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Um, uh, one, during the Law Review episode, one of you, Christian probably, that's what she says, Christian probably, it's in parentheses. She can just guess it was probably me, right? Yeah. Said that no one loves the blue book. That does sound like, exactly it does like, sound like <laughs> you. <laughs> she says, that's definitely wrong. I love the blue book. Ask anyone who's taken a class from me. I'm not necessarily proud of this. 
Nor should she be, right, Joe? Oh, oh. Ooh, and it's not necessarily a healthy love. But now, there are blue we, book aficionados out there. This was my, this is a point I made. I agree with two out of the three things in that sentence. <laughs> uh, relating to point one, I would like to be the first charter member of Joe's blue book antiquarian society. Welcome. <laughs> uh, listening to your discussion of contempt of cop in episode 43 and others, I was reminded of something I learned long ago in Indiana constitutional law. And then uh, she gives a citation of the case in blue book format. Of course. And she notes that it's in blue book format. Uh, basically, this is the one where the defendant screamed profanities at the police. It's kind of an FU scenario, mm-hmm. and the cop arrests uh, the person for disorderly conduct. And the Indiana Supreme Court more or less said that the defendant's behavior was, quote, core political speech under the Indiana Constitution and overturned her disorderly conduct conviction. As I recall, Indiana courts have since walked that back a bit. Um, in other words, cussing loudly in the vicinity of cops. We're using the word cussing a lot instead of cursing today. Have you noticed that? Yeah, well, that's how, that's the word I say. That it can support a conviction. If you're cursing so loudly as to impede the cop's investigation, you can be convicted. And, and then she notes that she hasn't, you know, she's not sure what the law is right now, but I thought it was an interesting gloss on your contempt of cop concept. Another random tidbit of Indiana con law, you have a constitutional right to scalp tickets in Indiana. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Really interesting, huh? Yeah. And it is these, you do worry about situations where, um, you, you worry about a situation where, uh, law enforcement can kind of engineer the violation. Right. By, by sort of setting up a situation where, you know, if you, if, if you say something loud, I can arrest you for saying something loud. Right. Like, really? I mean, <laughs> cause it's in a situation where you can tell the person's kind of amped up and it's, like so, they're going to say something loud as soon as you say that. Yeah. And so you there. So you just engineered your own arrest as as a law enforcement. I just see it makes me a little. I worry about it a little bit because it seems like it's liable, obviously, to some abuse. A long term writing idea I have, or maybe maybe a show, is th- there are some jobs which are special. They're special because they put the person who has them in a particular risk of prosecution or law violation. But they may also be special because they put the person in a particular position of power where abuse is very likely. And the law sometimes has to take account of that, like insurance almost, right? right. That, it, that, that the law is not trying to dictate exactly what should happen, but is kind of carving out zones away from danger zones, right? Yeah. So like qualified immunity is going to allow a lot of bad stuff to happen, right? right? And, uh, but it, but it, it mitigates that risk that people in that, 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 that by accepting a position as a police officer, something you take on too much risk. And similarly, having a wide berth around disorderly conduct, like not allowing a lot of prosecutions for that, right. helps to solve the problem that cops maybe overzealously enforce what is about a matter of like, you have to respect me. And the reason why right. I think it's important is because it is, be, and it's, this is only tangentially related and it's, uh, I apologize in that sense, but it's, uh, but it, it seems like I've been, I've becoming increasingly worried over the last two years about the what it seems like the people who we are attracting, like when we talked to Seth uh, Stoughton in South Carolina about, you know, uh, warrior culture versus guardian culture. Yeah. Like, I think we need to be very concerned about the kind of, the kind of people we attract to be police officers. Right. By the, by the way we set up 
and the system and permit them to do, engage in certain behaviors. Yeah. Because you don't want to attract people to to the job of being a police officer on the ground that, wow, that's a place where you get to physically abuse a lot right. of people, especially right. poor people who are brown. Right. Like, yikes. Like, that is not – because if that's what you set up, that's exactly who you're going to and, attract. And that's an argument for, you know, showing that that risk, that special risk of being a police officer is real. And the, the risk is, like, you know, my, I don't have a lot of situations in my everyday life where I – in performing – my usual tasks, I'm at risk of prosecution. I just, I just don't. Right. If I'm a police officer and I have to basically manhandle people in order to arrest them, and I have to do that sometimes, legitimately. Absolutely. But there's always the risk there that I go too far. Like it's right. an unusual risk that we have. But you're saying it's very important that we, through prosecution of some of these people, throwing them in jail uh, um, because they went too far, it's important because it sends a signal to people who want that job precisely to manhandle people that they know that people like me who do what I want to do go to jail. Yeah. Right. I, I think that's a really important consideration that we need to be thinking through the, the issue of who we're inducing or attracting into the occupation by the way we treat um, the people who misbehave when they have that occupation. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I don't, I didn't know uh, in the case of my father's father, I didn't know him at all, um, but he was a policeman, and my mother's father, who I did know and loved a lot, um, was a fireman. Mm-hmm. And so the, <laughs> I feel like in the in the sort of mists of my family history, like I have a very uh, I have a place of real affection in in myself for the people who pursue these very dangerous occupations there are public service occupations mm-hmm. there is and so when we were talking about guardian culture as yeah. a way to think about those things to me that's very affirming and positive and really great yeah and really um connects with thoughts i have about what people who are like who pursue those occupations um and we need to encourage that the best in us that's why it took us so long to do that show yeah. right when we were thinking about the after Ferguson, the problems of policing, we, we really didn't want to do a show where it was just about how, you know, how, how cops are terrible or here's the problem with cops. Or we, America's got to, we wanted to do a show that like looked at policing from the perspective of the police and the people on the other side and really right. explored the sociology of that really weird interface where, where the violence of the state becomes manifest rather than just implicit. And therefore, Seth Snowden was the perfect person to have totally on Totally perfect. And, it, and so it, that situation is so fraught with challenge and complexity in how you design it. Um, and I just felt, I hear myself thinking that all the time. Like I read a story yeah. about some crazy police behavior and I'm like, this is who, this is not who you want to attract to this job, people. Mm. <laughs> For someone who does this crazy stuff. Second email from listener Joel in the mailbag. We're getting close to the end of the mailbag here. Um, and he, he mentions he was listening to a public lecture. This is on the University of Chicago faculty, law school faculty podcast. Yes. Oh, this is the deference mistakes episode. Yeah. I, Jonathan I that. Major. quite good. Is it Major or Mazer? I've exchanged no emails with him a long time ago. No Seems idea. like a really interesting thinker. And he talks about the problem of courts basically citing precedent but misunderstanding yeah. the standard of review to use. And this was a co-written paper with a professor at Stanford, Lisa Willette. Okay, yeah. So we want to mention her too, although okay. Joel doesn't mention her, but that's a co-authored paper. Because I think he's listening to the podcast with Jonathan. Different, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but this paper about deference mistakes. That would be something to talk about in the future. Yeah. But but he mentions that um, 
he mentioned this with the in, in connection with the blue book stuff, right? That mm. uh, the thinking is that this would provide a um, uh, one suggestion made in the course of the recording is that the norms of citation should include something to identify the standard of review or burden of proof applicable in the prior case, right? Which, of course, I do not support. <laughs> he notes that this, he notes <laughs> right. that this would be. Uh, um, he said it would maybe be inconsistent with my blue line proposal. My proposal no, to replace maybe the about blue book. It, it would be inconsistent with it. It, it would be, and uh, one thing. Is, but basically, he's saying you know there, there's information people are missing when they use cases, and so we should encode the metadata right about like the standard review right into this case citation. Right. And of course, m- my whole problem with the blue book is that it tries to encode way too much metadata. Right. into a citation but with the signals with the typography and all that is just a mess i mean right now we do like we include which court of appeals it is because there's more than one we include the year in which it was decided because there's you know because that could matter right i mean there's a lot of stuff we pack into that citation yeah it's it's uh so I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't read this paper though so i may change my mind about and the importance well, this, of doing that. This right. suggestion came up at the in the podcast someone at someone yeah. in the audience asked that question so i don't know that it's in the paper Maybe it is. I don't know. This next email from listener Nicholas. Yes, our, this is listener Nick. Mm-hmm. The same Nick who's asking about originalism wanted to reemphasize that we hadn't answered it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so we did, and we have list, answered you, Nick. It, and... it is a. It is a. Well, he he says a few other things in here, but I think we addressed it. And it, what was great. I so this is this is a, a this fortitude. Is an, an email about originalism asking why we haven't answered his original email. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he, uh, good email and he's asking, uh, I think, I don't think there's anything new in here that we didn't address, but please get back to us, listener, Nick, we owe you one, uh, if, if there's more that we could say on this. Totally. Listener Taylor has a suggestion for an episode in our 2023 lineup. Oh my gosh. This is, this is a listener who, I don't no- think I'm going to make it that long. Well, this is a listener who understands that we've already said many times that we should do a show about that. And so that if we add a new one to that. Uh, it should, it probably is going to have to be 2023 before we get to it. And uh, the suggestion is in the light of the global financial crisis. Um, well, how would you, how would you say this? Like basically punishment of corporations. Yeah. Um, how you, what, what, how do you punish uh, something that is not a natural person? Yeah. And the, you know, the sort of the collapse of Enron and the end of Arthur Anderson. And um, I mean, these things do happen from time to time, but they're quite rare. Yeah. Uh, the prosecution of a corporation. And, and Taylor mentions that we've had that our former guest, like Brandon, he's talked about exactly that before. He's written about mm. it. He uh, also mentions that Lisa Kern Griffin would be a great choice. Uh, so um, and, and mentions a few other uh, writers. So I agree. We, we have not done a show on this. We have actually talked about it, though. Yeah, we've talked about like doing a show on corporate personhood. A show on the financial crisis. So we've talked. We we haven't gotten to it again. It's all about finding the right guest who can appear yeah. at the right time, who agrees to talk to us. <laughs> and this, so so that'll be around twenty twenty nine. He mentions twenty twenty three. I mm-hmm. think that's a little ambitious. We only have two more emails here, Joe. I know, and it's and we're only twenty minutes past the hour mark that we said we would do. Yeah, but anything under an hour and a half is gold. <laughs> <laughs> this is without any editing. It's under an hour and a half. That's amazing. Yeah. Um. So listener. Michael. And and former guest. Okay, so do you want to, yeah, we're going to reveal everything. This is Michael Madison. Yeah, we're letting it all hang out. <laughs> do you want to talk about this one? Um, uh, well. Because it's about your idea. Uh, yeah, well, so I, yeah, I mentioned this idea of combining the Federal Trade Commission, the Patent Office, the Copyright Office, 
Uh, and he's right. Uh, we'd need to include um, the, the antitrust division within the DOJ, probably, um, maybe not, uh, and the Federal Communication Commission, um, and call it the Federal Competition Commission. And he's so, uh, Mike is so great, and I admire his stuff, and he's, I just think he's a wonderful thinker. And um, uh, so he asks, why call it Federal Competition Commission? Why not Federal Collaboration Commission? Um, and, and that's a way of asking, I mean, there were some specific things in there, but partly it's just saying the way we name and, and, and therefore frame what we're talking about is so important. And mm-hmm. to think about why frame it as competition mm-hmm. as opposed to something else like collaboration. Um, and, and, you know, I, I do have a, a thought about that. Um, I've got one thought too. Not, uh, so what's your thought about it? My thought is that in the current climate, you don't want to name anything in such a way that people could identify federal collaborators. <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds like it might add a little fuel to the um, right. the the fever pitch. So, so you know. my thought, which okay, is go ahead. So mine is silly. You're you're going to say something serious. Your, mine is completely unrelated to your thought. Um, no, so I think I think the reason why federal competition commission is a good choice, although I agree with him hundred percent. You, you really want to think very carefully about the choice, and there could be many good choices and many bad ones, and, and you'd want to try to get the best. Uh, so it's, it is worth thinking about. Um, and I think the reason why Federal Competition Commission is a good one, and it, and it might even be in running for the best one, is because it, I think it is very, um, I, I think it's quite important in a, in a, at a time when the claims made on behalf of IP owners have become more and more and more extravagant that we think about and, and, and recommit to the fact that one of the most basic predicates of our economic arrangements mm-hmm. in the Anglo-American tradition is competition. Now, he's right to say in his email here, you know, it's not competition in every moment full out always under all circumstances that's quite right um in fact there's a very famous judge easterbrook opinion in a case, i think the case is called something like poke brothers and it and it says it just says that very thing like no having having competition you know to the wall at every moment at all time that would be a terrible approach and we don't have that approach collaboration sometimes is great but competition is so important and there are so many uh, occasions where entities are are arguing very strenuously to be uh, relieved of the burdens of competition because competition is in many ways really hard and really awful and and so you want to be relieved of those burdens but it's so important it it yields so many benefits to the public that it's the basic it's the default rule of our economy. Mm-hmm. Giving people state-sanctioned monopoly privileges is not the basic assumption of our economy. So I, I think it's it would be great to choose the name for this commission that reminds everybody, oh yeah, competition. That's really important. Hmm. So that's why I would argue that it's a good name. I don't have anything to add, in, uh, particularly on that, other than I was just thinking about these terms um, because. Right after we do this, I've got to start thinking about recording for my legal theory class. Mm. And this week's reading is on 
uh, Robin West's Jurisprudence and Gender, mm. which is all built around this. Real, it's just such a beautiful, interesting piece, you know, no matter what you think about it. And it's all about this difference between our individual separation and our individual connection mm. to others, like the extent to which we are connected to one another and the extent to which we, and she maps that to gender in all kinds of beautiful ways. But this idea that our society is at default about the, the default of society is of our society's competition rather or than economic collaboration. arrangement. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with you. That's why I say it's not, I'm not really commenting on, on what you said exactly, but uh, my mind is already on the next thing that I have to do. And I'm already, and, and there's a, there's a beautiful um, kind of symmetry there. Yeah. And she's in a, I mean, Robin West is, uh, uh, we've done some of her stuff in the major works class and, mm-hmm. and she's such an amazing scholar. What a piece. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing article, mm. this one. And anyway, um, listener bunny. Cyberloquium. <laughs> this is a great note to end on tonight. It is, it is a great note to end on. And, and we're not going to get to everything I got on Twitter, including, uh, I think it was, uh, David Ziff had a comment about um some further thoughts on blue books oh and you know judge posner's excellent little uh the article the small the short article in the green bag that he did right um about and it's part what's one and it's like what's wrong with the federal put judiciary the blue books in a pile and, and burn, burn them <laughs> yeah so judge posner and i are exactly i think we are on board you two are practically indistinguishable <laughs> this could be the the richard posner adam smith podcast oh amazing <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so this is cool because uh listener bunny long time listener bunny not just friend of the show family pioneer of the show yeah really she's been with us since the beginning she's in the pioneer circle she's part of the oral argument family and she's uh doing something i don't know how much she wants us to go into but she's which necessitated her creating a blog and so she's created one which is about the computer fraud and abuse act which may seem like a narrow topic but in fact, it is huge, it right? It is huge. If you think about basically all of there, there, we have very few actual laws governing cybersecurity right. and commercial marketplace. And this one and the is web. quite, and this one's quite old. And many people say is written quite poorly, and therefore has generated many interesting curly cues of jurisprudential right. gack over the years. And she's got a a, a, a website about it. And now. she she emails us and says, "Well, why should you know?" She tells us about it. And she says, "Why should you care?" And I'm thinking. Why should I care? It's because it's made by Listener Bunny. That's, That's right. why. That's a reason to care. That's a reason enough. Like you, you had me at Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. But then she says, because I appropriated the name Cyberloquium and figured you should find out from me before, directly before you accidentally stumble upon it. I don't foresee continuing the blog after basically the next few months. Right. Uh, but if I do, it'll be a curation of random legal nerdy things and not necessarily just about the CFAA. But I think people should start following it now because I think this thing's going to be huge. Yeah. Partly because of the name. So what she's referring to is that <laughs> when when you and I did the first iteration of this thing, which really it was like the pre, it was it was a it was a podcast we did just for my legal theory class several years ago, and yes. just to annoy you, and we very carefully destroyed the tapes, just to annoy you, um, I called it the cyberloquium because I knew how much you hated the word webinar, which I also <laughs> share. I think it is a terrible crime against words and and concepts and, and just human ear it's not just the word it's the whole uh webinar just uh no webinar. no uh and and but i knew of your special distaste for it so i thought well what is even worse than webinar and you did manage <laughs> curiously enough to successfully coin it's not so hard it's not so hard because anything with cyber in it is very unlikely to be decent it, 
<laughs> yes, you you went right to the heartland of the fertile soil of of awful words um, by <laughs> by starting with cyber. I I, I agree right. with you one hundred percent on that. Um, cyberloquium that it, it just it showed your special flair <laughs> for finding the right place to put the needle for really vile stuff. <laughs> And then it was quite an accomplishment. And so now, I love that she's adopted that. And now we know who owns the domain. And found a way to, you know, make some good out of a thing that was not good. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I love it. All right. Well, I think we're going to end there. Cool. Can you think of anything else we should talk about? I can think of one other thing. I think that we are going to be back in two weeks. I think this is the point of the year where we're going to go to every other week. Okay. We may go back to every week after the semester closes, but for now it's going to be every other week. We'll yeah. talk about this right. and we'll see what listeners want. Like, is it, you know, maybe you fall behind. Maybe people only want an every other week show. Maybe Possible. that would make it easier for people to follow. Yeah. Maybe they're going to be thinking, I need more Joe in my life. You know, twice a week wouldn't be enough. Um, here's the thing. <laughs> um, I have yet to encounter a single human being of which that statement is true. So oh boy. I, so I, th- I think, I think that's unlikely. Well, we um, so, definitely know there are two so dogs. There are definitely two dogs who think that's true. <laughs> so we're moving to an every other week process and for at least for a little while. Just for a little while, at least until yeah. until sometime in May. And we'll we'll see after that. And I, listener feedback, give us your feedback on all of our shows. I would this has been super fun. It's been a long time coming. And we haven't gotten really even to everything, but hopefully to most things. Yes. And uh, look forward to doing it again. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Oral argument on Twitter. Oral argument on Facebook. Let's just say oral argument on Snapchat. We don't actually have a Snapchat, but let's just say yeah. we do. Okay. Maybe oral argument on Twitch. Twitch. You know Twitch? People, yeah. So people would watch videos of us recording something? Yeah. Or? Oh. yeah. Yeah. They have a creative channel now where you can watch Bob Ross and you can watch people cooking. Oh. It's really cool. Do I, I do it to watch a couple of people play Kerbal Space Program. I bet. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. I, I mean, finally understand. I, no I understand Twitch. Hmm? And, and here's a billion dollar idea, by the way, because this is going to be huge. Don't say it. Well, <clears throat> so I've, I understand the appeal of watching somebody do something with a comment thread next to it. Yeah. Somebody who does that for Netflix and creates communities. So, so what people are going to want to gather around a community of people watching something together, whether it's a TV series or something else. Like I want to watch, I don't know, the West Wing or some other show. We're going to marathon it. And if somebody is a particularly like charismatic figure or, you know, like people like their communities and that's the attraction of Twitch. You watch somebody play the game who attracts community and there's a kind of chat and vibe that kind of, you know, you know what I mean? I do, but I'm having trouble figuring out how this is different from like you couldn't now for, for example, consider a, a sporting event that is broadcast on, on a national network, um, at a particular time, uh, th- People could be watching it. Mm-hmm. People could be tweeting about it. Yeah. If you're using a, the hashtag, there could be a Twitter stream and you could see, you don't need something. Yeah, I'm exists, telling you, use, use Twitch a little bit and you'll see. You'll oh, see. Okay. I'll leave it for next time. All right. See ya.